Alright, welcome to another episode of the Always Already Podcast. This is your host, James, and I am joined by our Fanon correspondent, M. Shadi Malaklu. Thanks for having me. And Shadi, you and I now, as the we are the two senior members um, on this podcast episode, because there is a third new, uh, we're going to say a new member of the Motley crew today, um, makes a splash here on the Always Already podcast. Who are you, new third person? <laughs> new third person. Uh, my name is Darius, like Paris Carter. I'm an assistant professor of black studies at Portland State University. Uh, Darius has been one of my lifelines living out here in Portland um, over the last six months or so. Um, so I'm happy that we can bring you into the Always Already podcast family and our like rotating cast of characters and people who are like adjacent, who float in and out and... As at, like, in the centrifugal, centripetal forces of this podcast, I think, Shadi, you're getting sucked in closer to the center as as new, like, spiral bands of people feed in from the outside. You're getting sucked in closer to the center, but maybe there is no center at all, so it's all, like, an illusion. It's mental thinking, because it fits so nicely with our reading today. Yeah, I, that's where I was going. I was I wanted to set up this kind of arabesque, fractal, mental image because we're going to be talking about a text today that is very uh nonlinear and and as 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 a as a a method a nonlinear method um what are we going to be discussing Shadi? We're discussing Alexis Pauling Gunn's new work M Archive after the end of the world due out with Duke University Press next month March. Yes, so this is an advanced copy we no one else has has read this yet, other than perhaps other folks who have advanced copies. Um, so we, how did that work out? How did we get this book? Uh, Alexis was kind enough to send us a copy once we requested one, and she was thrilled to have us review it for um, the Always Already podcast and to give some of our thoughts on the book. So thank you, big thank you. Um, Thanks, Alexis. So Alexis Pauline Gums, um, and so I think we should just kind of, we wanted to, we got to sketch out, I guess, kind of like the context for this book, um, for genre, um, how would we describe it, I guess? But so Alexis describes it herself as a speculative documentary, or rather she describes herself as a speculative documentarian in the introduction. Mm-hmm. So a speculative documentarian, and I would say like just a basic kind of setup for the listeners, the it's a post-apocalyptic narrative, maybe not narrative. Uh, there's a narrative um, that is a ref- someone or some people are narrating the end of the world, the end of the current world that we are living in now. So it's like a speculative document, documentary, like a speculative documentary or some kind of documentary project in some future that is looking back cosmology and alexis describes this as um written from and with the perspective of a researcher who is a post-scientist sorting artifacts after the end of the world Mm -hmm. um and this is not just kind of end of the world in this grand apocalyptic narrative sense but it's after and i'm quoting from the book 
um, after and with a multitude of small and large present apocalypses. Mm-hmm. So after the many ways we have, we, we know the world have ended. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it has, I mean, it, it, you know, and it's written in, in conversation with kind of ancestral or depth beings as, um, as the author describes them. And perhaps the most, uh, Central of those is is M. Jackie Alexander's Pedagogies of Crossing, which inspires the book. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a way um, Alexis writes on it's yeah, it's in this prefatory note. Um, speculative dark well. M. Archive, after um, the end of the world, imagines another form, the speculative documentary, which is not not ancestrally co-written, but is also written in collaboration with survivors, the far into the future witnesses to the realities we are making possible or impossible with our present apocalypse. And that very idea that this book is essentially a collaboration just for me reinforces the idea that Alexis Gums has a particular brand of black sorcery um, that helps us understand like <laughs> the worlds we deny but also make possible. And and she tethers us to multiple realms at one time so that we have to deal with the constant tension of blackness, which is for me, you know, the tension of blackness is always present insofar as it is historical, it is present tense, and we know the we know the different ways in which it is present tense, but it is also future tense all at one time. Absolutely. Trying to speak from a future present tense, but I'm reminded here of something that Jared Sexton calls for, which is not the end of the world, just the end of a desire for a world in the first place. And by refusing a kind of singular worlding, Alexis does this. And speaking from a future perfect tense, Mm -hmm. it's the end of the world without the containment of those conditions of possibilities into new isms, into new discourse, into new protocols of knowing and being. Yeah. And just on that, I think the, the, the tense of the, or the tensity of this text to me, as I was reading through it, it kept reminding me of a lot of the mythology that I've read, of West African mythology, specifically Yoruba mythology, and just thinking about how one of the definitions of mythology is that it is a story, or it's, mythology is always true in a timeless sense, right? Like, there is no temporality for a myth. It is an allegory that gets interpreted for new context, right? But, like, the truthfulness of a myth is outside of time in some kind of way. And so there was, there's something about reading this as a, for me, reading it as a kind of a a mythology of the future about the past present or something that like the tensity, like the tense of it is, is not says nothing about its truthfulness. Its truthfulness is ever present always already. Right. And like, Yes. That that part of it was just really it's beautiful what she's doing um imaginatively mm-hmm. and and like the the fantastic imagination mm-hmm. of writing and thinking about a a post-apocalyptic kind of space of futurity. Like that's just an incredible amount of intellectual mm-hmm. labor mm-hmm. that I it am is, impressed. It's a futurity that defies you know, reproductive futurity and all the ways we can imagine futurity in this world. This is mm-hmm. poetry from the future. This is what Marx says, the poetry we can perceive but not recognize. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, she's taken that and made it into something that we can read is, um, I was in awe of reading this. Yeah. Uh, and it felt very, very, as you said, um, 
like the mythology we have been speaking of in different dialects and tongues and without um, a common referent. And here is our referent. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love this moment at the very end of the introduction where she writes, consider this text an experiment, an index, an oracle, an archive. Let this text be as alive as you are alive. Might be enough, right? It's it's reminding us that this project, I don't even want to call it a book, right? Like there, there's something about the, the tangibility and legibility of the book that somehow still fails to capture what this project is doing or potentially does to us, with us, and on our persons. Um, but I love that she doesn't traffic in this is what this project is. Um, but again, thinking about this idea of a speculative documentary, she's like, you know, consider this, right? Or something might be enough, right? It's, it's in part, you know, if we think, if we think about ourselves as human subjects, right? Or subjects who are really bound up in all these knots, there's a way, right? Especially as scholars that Alexis's project allows those knots to loosen and loosen and slightly unravel such that we might even be able to produce projects that aren't necessarily just books, but take on book forms, right? Um, there's a kind of, pa there's a channeling, there's a passing through, there's a writing with, there's an absolute decimation, right? There are all of these things that are happening through this project without the guarantee of a particular future or set of outcomes. Absolutely. That takes us to the question we started with before we went on air, which is what is the genre of this book? And it defies genre. Yeah. Um, James, you mentioned this black feminist metaphysics that. Right. Yeah. I wanted to. Um, in the, I guess it's like the preface part, um, page 11, Roman numerals, she talks about what she centers, or at least for, as I read this, it's the kind of, it's the, again, I'm using a mythology way, because that's, I'm, I'm in that mode, of, so like, that's how I think through it, and then, in, a, in at least a kind of a cultural studies or a cultural anthropology setup, you have worldview and ethos, right? And like a worldview is just like the structure of your cosmos or it's a cosmology. And her cosmology, I think it's really important for anyone who's going to read the book before you can even like sit into the texture of the way the story unravels. You need to understand that her cosmology is centering, as she says, black life, black feminist metaphysics, and the theoretical imperative of attending the black bodies in a way that doesn't seek to prove that black people are human, but instead calls pre-existing definitions of the human into question. And then on page six, she redefines the project again, saying that the project itself being black feminist metaphysics, which is to say breathing. And, and so what does that mean? Like, a black metaphysics or a black feminist metaphysics that is breathing. And like, if that is a worldview and a cosmology. And what does it mean to breathe? That what is it? Right. And like, how does that animate like a set of concerns? We'll say you can see like the things that she's concerned about in our present that become the downfall of this world within mm -hmm. her narrative. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, attending the black bodies and showing what that black feminist metaphysics of breathing attunes you to like ancestors in the dirt in way, right? Like, and you were talking about right. eco-criticism. So, so I think there's something really beautiful going on there. Yeah, no, breathing for her in this post-apocalyptic world exists underground and underwater. Mm -hmm. And I think the the trope that she uses at one point is gills. What does it mean to, like, perversely evolve to develop gills? 
Um, elsewhere, she writes at length about freedom as a kind of coevalness with nature. Mm-hmm. The end of the Anthropocene, which is also coincidentally the end of a racist, sexist world in which black lives cannot matter or black people mm-hmm. cannot breathe. Okay, so let's let's talk about that for a second. The end of the Anthropocene. That, I think, is a good... Like, if you were just going to... Like, if you were going to read this in a kind of literature class, I guess the, some of the first questions you would just say is, like, what is the story, right? And you could say this is the story of how the Anthropocene unravels itself, right? Destroys itself. Destroys itself, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in a way, we destroy ourselves because we've not allowed ourselves to breathe. Like, we've mm-hmm. done... And in a very literal sense of, like, what we're doing to the planet... Mm-hmm. And our reduction in trees, there are lots of references to that. Mm -hmm. But this starts with the middle passages in there as well as part of this process of the ecological changes that are the Anthropocene. And so talking like in the beginning, in the first section, um, she talks about salinity in the water and the calcium deposits of the bones of dead slaves that are part of like bioluminescence and and just talking about how like every part of this world ecologically is inseparable from those events. Right. But hello. Yes. Okay. No, absolutely. And so I was just, I was just thinking and, and looking for um, the spaces where she does talk at length about uh, a kind of evolution with nature in collaboration with nature, the ways in which, as you said, the middle passage becomes part of the ecology of this Anthropocene. On page 11, she has, she's kind of like, and this is still at the beginning. So in, because like, there's a, there's some kind of narration that's going on in M archive, but I'm not a hundred percent sure who the narrator actually is, but it's someone who's a survivor at the, you know, at, after the end. It's of not the, a proper noun, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And possibly some ones, right? Right. Because part of, part of the critique, right. That I think this book makes is that there wasn't an, it's in part our investment in the idea of the individual, that brings about the end of the world in all these different ways, right? Even when Alexis is talking through, you know, the heart, the engaged heart, right? The heart is something that we associate with a very mechanical, biological function in our bodies, right? Tethering us to earth and to reality in particular ways, and even thinking about the way that blood courses through the heart, right? And how with breathing or black feminist metaphysics of breathing, one of the ways that we think about breathing is through our individual bodies, right? And so when we locate uh, the, when we isolate the body or the individual as the thing that tells us about the world, as opposed to thinking about breathing in a more expansive way, right? In the multiple forms of bodies um, that make our lives possible, then it also produces these alternative histories or engagements with water, right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, mm-hmm. Christina Sharp helps us do that within the wake, right? Thinking Absolutely. through weight work, thinking about residence time. Um, right. Yeah. So she it's the middle passage, right, as one event, not the events of the apocalypse. Um, but right. she does so in a way that is about the way that that event not just created a certain ecology, but also prompted other sensorium. Mm-hmm. So for, in, in which the body moves with other bodies. And so there's something here about literally being packed like cargo or chattel that, that defies indivisibility. 
that is about a communal making possible. Mm -hmm. um, that is about disavowing that one individuated person who can be self-contained. Mm -hmm. And as you say, Darius, it's about that future. And so this, as you said, you know, is, is very, I, I also read it as a series of someone's mm -hmm. telling this story. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, someone's in a kind of, like a fractal scale level that like sometimes the she is the earth, right? Mm -hmm. The ontology of the earth and everything in it is like mm -hmm. the one she, mm -hmm. or sometimes the she is the black woman who is in everyone. As she talks about everyone, you know, one of the problems of this world was that they didn't realize that everyone had a little bit of a black woman in them. Um, right. and, and that we thought black women were separate from us and different mm -hmm. from us, right? Mm -hmm. That was part of this. And, said, and I think this is important. It's the fat black woman. The Absolutely. fat black woman, yes. Yeah. No, there's a whole yeah. in praise of the mm -hmm. fat black woman mm -hmm. section mm -hmm. uh, that maybe let's, let me just mm -hmm. read it since we're, yeah, we're yeah. on it. Because the fat black woman is also this analogy of like the muddy earth too, I think. And how mm -hmm. the muddy earth is the fat black woman who takes care of us even when we don't know she's taking care of us. Um, and it's on page 146 where it's like the, oh, I, I thought of it as the ode to the, the fat black woman. Um, I'm just trying to pull it up real quick. We have e I have an e copy, so everything's going to be a little slower on PDF here. You have it on paper. Okay, yeah, 146. If you think you would have survived without the love of fat black women, you are wrong. If you say it, you are lying. If you have blocked them out of your memory, it is because you do not want to know the meaning of necessary. You have failed them at the same moment you have failed the planet, which is every moment. Say it. Say the name of the fat black woman who processed your paperwork or fed you or cleaned something on which you would have slipped. Say it before you die in your own filth. How dare you? How dare you say that fat means lazy and sloppy and wrong? Who cleans? Who works all the time while you are sleeping and hating yourself? Who fixes everything you don't know how to do? You are a liar. You are a mess. You are, you allowed, you are allowed to be a mess because of the unending work of fat black women. Fat black women specifically. And you allow yourself to be a mess because you tell yourself, whoever you are, at least I'm not a fat black woman. Even if you are a fat black woman, you've lied and said you weren't or compared yourself to someone else. It's failure. It's a lie from the devil. It will never work. It is killing us all. How many statues of fat black women do the ancients have to hide for you to dig up and understand what God looks like? Yes. Mm -hmm. How many times do fat black women have to save your life in song? What are you paying attention to? This is why you never see God in yourself. You are damned by your hatred of fat black women, and no part of you could ever live without them. This is why the universe, huge, black, unfolding, expansive, shakes and shakes her head you fools you wasteful fools mm. like, yes yes mm. everything and she continues on page 174 she says in my time we would have called the doers the black women and everyone else respectively mm. understand that it was neither biological nor intrinsically attached to gender there was a reason for the pattern she goes on and she describes exactly as you say james that this flat fat black woman is in every one of us mm. Because we're inseparable from the ultimate fat, black, brown, muddy woman. Because the universe is a fat, black woman. Yes, mm -hmm. right? Like, that's... Uh, mm -hmm. That's beautiful. <laughs> but yeah, there's a way that um, we journey to the great expanse when 
we feel a sense of safety and security regarding our ability to somehow master that space. Right. So I, I think about Alexis's framing, um, in the, in the quote that you just read, James, I think about that in relation to her first project spill, but also going back to spillers, mama's baby, papa's maybe. Right. So thinking about how this project as the second installation in the trilogy, it, the, the first book spills into this one. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, so what is yeah. this trilogy? I think that's important to, for the genre, and like yeah. I love that there's like a there is I okay I'm just gonna say it because like, this has been it keeps bleeding into the way I want to set this up and talk about it because I'm a big like Marvel type nerd and I just love <laughs> fantasy genres yes. and I love that this is part of a trilogy series mm-hmm. and it's like you need to know some of the like the geneolo- the genealogy of how this even fits in mm-hmm. and like. So go ahead. Yeah. What yeah. is the trilogy series? Yeah. So um, the I know the the first and second books, but I don't know what the third one is. Um, I've got some guesses, but I don't want to say. Um, the the first book spill is Alexis engaging with or writing with and after Hortense Spillers, right? So Spillers having this um, fantastic essay that is still making careers possible, making strands of thought possible. Um, Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe, where she helps us understand the various ways in which. Um, she helps us explain how, okay, how multiple national subjectivities are based on the negation of black women's voices and experiences, right? And so, you know, Spillers is in part giving us this grammar through which we can understand, um, flesh and the captive body, helping us understand how an engagement with blackness, which Tony K. Barr told us this shit in the 70s, it's, you know, an engagement with blackness is also potentially an engagement in ungendering. Right. And so helping us think about the richest possibilities of the human or even the remaking or rejection of the human are rooted in this engagement with blackness. And so Alexis writing with Spillers, you know, she only cites from she only cites Spillers book and a conversation titled What You Gonna Do, um, which is Hortense Spillers in conversation with Jennifer Morgan, Sadia Hartman, Farrah Griffin and Shelley Eversley, where they as these scholars, as literary critics and historians and cultural critics are unpacking the ways that Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe made their projects possible, right? And these are books and articles. And so only citing the work of Spillers provides this fantastic, um, very brief bibliography, but also... What Alexis does with the project is she imagines, conjures, writes accounts of black women, girls, and femmes who are negated such that all these other American identities are made, right? So if Spillers gave us the language to understand the function of that loss, um, Alexis comes in, and I don't even want to call it a recovery project because it is so much more than that, right? She uses the pronoun she, um, refusing a proper noun to specifically name these subjects in this book, right? And somehow through the painting of all of these different scenes, we get a whole legion of she's um, who are one and many and so much more. But what's beautiful is that these scenes work as poetry, black feminist literary criticism and black feminist theory. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, All at once. And you're just like she pulls you through realms. It's yeah, it's other dimensional. Like Mm -hmm. and I just love even to the way like the way the chapters, if you want to even call them chapters, the way they're broken down. Um, so the intro is titled from the lab notebooks of the last experiments. And then you get these four archives, archive of dirt, what we did, archive of sky, what we became archive of fire rate of change and an archive of ocean origin. 
Um, the, the, like, the witch brujo in me loves the dirt, sky, fire, ocean. You know, you got your four elements. Um, um, but I also, you know, I like that this is a speculative, I mean, I don't know even know, I think it's speculative, but it's also critical fabulation in this, yeah. in this way that creates an archive where there is none. Mm-hmm. It creates a story, a mythology where there is none, right? Where there is only ever natal alienation, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so people can, can see themselves in what she is writing. Um, and I think it's because it's, it's, it, it creates plentitude out of, out of nothingness, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, you said Darius that it refuses to give a proper noun to the, to the she, but it also refuses to give a proper noun to locations, yeah. right? To the apocalypse itself. Mm-hmm. It refuses that singularity, but at the same time, it is a singularity. It's the fat black woman. Yep. Because right. there's a kind of yeah. ultimate, I'm, I almost like I read it's this. pluralism out of singularity. And you know, the Congress right. Collective told us, when black women are free, mm-hmm. the rest of the world will be yep. free. <laughs> That's it. That's it. There's a, um, this is what's actually, I really think, and I'm not sure, well, I, I, I hope that Alexis Pauline Gums is going to listen to this perhaps. Um, but I, I'm curious because you have the four elements, right? Listed out as those archives. Mm-hmm. And in the old, like, hermetic European systems or whatever, you have, there are five elements, right? The four are the basis of materiality. The fifth element, the quint, the quintessentia in Latin, the quinta essentia, the fifth element or the fifth essence was spirit which is breath, right? It's, it's at the point of breathing that man becomes a living creature or whatever. And so the element that makes the cosmos more than just materiality is breath. Mm-hmm. And if she says that black feminist metaphysics is breathing, mm-hmm. then like all those archives that she brings together, what brings life out of those archives is this black feminist Mm-hmm. breath right mm-hmm. which is and i'm thinking of ashton crowley's work uh black pentecostalism black pentecostal that's breath right. mm-hmm. that's the name of the book right mm-hmm. the aesthetics of possibility mm-hmm. and he you know as a black queer pentecostal scholar of religion working ethnographically on black pentecostalism and like spirit ecstasy practices and really focusing in though on like the breath mm-hmm. and how breathing is this ontology of possibility within the black Pentecostal worldview. Mm -hmm. And I feel like she's working through that same understanding of breath, Mm -hmm. that breath is like, that is the present, right? The ever unfolding present Mm -hmm. sits at the threshold of breathing. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's thinking through elements at the level of scale, right? So she's looking at the larger Western project of enlightenment because she's pulling in periodic table, right? Like that visual industry and also editing, right? Which um, components of the periodic table she's messing with, but also getting us to think about other elements, right? Like Like literally pulling in the periodic table. There are sections when you read this where like every section is kind of the periodic table as it's actually laid out spatially mm-hmm. and, and, and assembled. Right. And I just, I'm not that I'm not a good chemist. Cause I was wondering as I was going through some of these sections, what do those chemical combinations actually make? Mm-hmm. Cause I don't think that's random. Right. Um, that no. if there is a, like a periodic table, so I'm looking on page 32, page 32 is a picture of sodium, magnesium, cadmium, no. Calcium, um, I can't really, oxygen, silicon, and iron. 
Maybe that's bone and blood, now that I've said it all out loud. Sodium, magnesium, calcium, iron, silicon, oxygen. That I don't know. That sounds like the components components of life, at least, though. Yeah. A good chemist could tell you exactly what you could make out of those combinations. But she did that, too. And I, mm-hmm. So that's a... She's a sorcerer, as Darius said. There's something very Gnostic or hermetic about this text. That, like, there are levels, like like an onion unfolding to other layers of of symbolism and meaning, you know? That, like, you can stumble upon it in just the very engagement with the text. There are other things to be discovered than just reading what she's writing. That onion, that peeling, I think has something to do with the way she loops time, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And describes what she's doing as time traveling. Yep. And what, what, you know, she says at some point on page 27, we had been time travelers first, yep. right? Yeah. That mm-hmm. ancestrally always already, you know, mm-hmm. maybe this is what it means to be timeless. Maybe this is what it means to be, you know, at some point Fanon says at the end of Black Skin, White Mask, which he ends with Marx's 18th premiere about poetry from the future, mentions that the problem of race is a problem for time. Yep. Right, black people are always out of time, and I know mm-hmm. Brittany Cooper's, you know, her mm-hmm. TED video talked at length about this. Yeah. Um, and I write about this as well that there's some ways in which time, uh, as a moving marker, does not belong to the being of the black. There's no time as capital, right. uh, no progress, right? Always kind of forever in this timeless kind of bush mentality that we have when we pornotrope racial blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is also that timelessness, that fixed. That, that lack of being fixed or the ability to be fixed is also means that you're a time traveler. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. doesn't be a time traveler and live in multiple dimensions at once. Right. That's a, what you're saying makes me think about, um, or think of Michelle Wright. She gave a talk, um, or it was yeah. an earlier version of her um, book. What's Physics of Blackness. Physics of Blackness, right? And so she's thinking about, you know, race as it pertains to the idea of historical time. And she says there is no progress. There is only the infinite possibilities of the present, right? And, and there's a way that Alexis is asking us and inviting us to play in that, right? Um, think about all of these different worlds which are ending, Right. Even if you're on Instagram and you follow Nayira Wahid, right, she'll let you know that especially for people of color, the world ends every single day. Mm-hmm. Was every single day, and there's something about the the richness of gathering up, right, the detritus, understanding yourself as being a part of that detritus, but also somehow beyond that, that she's inviting us to consider, right, which is again playing with elements and scale, right. And I th- no, it's it's all scalar. I think the world ending every day and mm-hmm. the world ending inside of world's ending is mm-hmm. almost a, uh, like you can think of time as an onion and every world is just another layer. So mm-hmm. like, a, like as soon as one world ends, it doesn't mean there are all these other worlds within worlds, right? And it's right. very multidimensional. Mm-hmm. And if you're out of time, mm-hmm. you're out of space too, because space time is a interrelated, you know, it's if like, the, it is a matter that does not matter. You have no boundary. That right? it's <laughs> the dark matter, right? You're yeah. dark matter. You are dark cosmic matter. blackness. Yeah. You are the cosmic effluvia. That mm-hmm. Fanon mentions. Um, between face. So there's, I there was definitely like physics of blackness mm-hmm. is a useful like I'm thinking of like other books that would help people be able to read this poetry mythology and understand it in some way. Like physics of blackness is a good book mm-hmm. to to help you get that vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Also, I was thinking like a little bit of like Karen Barrage, like quantum feminism mm. is very useful for thinking about like the multiplicity of the singularity at the mm. level of the electron. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and so is Sylvia Winter for that yeah, matter, absolutely. right? That yeah. all, if the problem of the Anthropocene is the problem of racism, sexism, et cetera, that means the genre of man is the problem of isms. I mean, yeah. this is exactly as Sylvia Winter describes it. Mm-hmm. 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 There, oh, there was something else that I wanted that maybe fits into there, but I can't think of it right now. Oh, okay. yeah, no, okay. I want, I do want to. Well, so yeah, no, yeah. I guess we can talk, right? Because the problem of humanism, the problem of all these isms, as you read through M Archive, you're getting like you get some very specific mentions of some problems of these people or something, like what they were doing to themselves. Um, so, like on page forty six. Um, she talks about soon everything that was left had a half-life, like hysteria, which meant our bodies were like landfills, places where nothing disintegrated but us, nothing made less of itself but the breathable air. Even the food should have been sad about it, but becoming part of our bodies was not a transformative process. It was a holding pattern without a scenic view. Uh, a few pages later on page 50, uh, each of us had to look it in the eye, the PlayStation the hydrogenated soybean oil, before it was added to the pile of never again. Everything that required the small fingers of children for its manufacture. Everything plastic releasing toxins all its half-life. The bloodletting of our consumption was total. So there you get this like eco-criticism, like the individualism of capitalism is causing children to, you know, work in sweatshops. It also causes you to eat hydrogenated soybean oil that is literally killing your body and not allowing you to breathe. It The plastic releases toxins in its as a half-life, which is a reference to its, like, carbon decay over time, which is why landfills will be there forever, just, like, making things worse. And it's really interesting that their consumption is bloodletting to her and it's like this metaphor of killing the earth is killing yourself is killing your body you can't breathe you know what i just kept thinking of kara walker's subtlety and the molasses children yeah, mm, yeah. that are messing under the sun it's, it's like you know what is the same little black bodies mm-hmm. that are being exposed to that fungibility and accumulate you know accumulation same shit, different day, yeah. right? Time yeah. loops. Different toilet, yeah. Yeah, well, when she, yeah, when she, sketch, she sketches out this very... But then, though, this is where it's, like, it's very interesting because she also says, so this is on page 62, what I'm trying to get at is that's how bright... And this is after setting some other things up, but just bear with me. What I'm trying to get at is that's how bright the inner light can get when it needs to in a situation of necessary darkness and total immersion in the material, which is to say underground or at the bottom of the sea, right? Like to fully, fully integrate in a material way is to die, I guess, right? To become one again with the earth where you were, I know, so you mentioned before about ancestors and the dirt and being underground and those kinds of, Metaphors. Yeah, surface, uh, surface beings versus depth beings. And depth mm-hmm. beings is the name she gives the ancestors. And they're depth beings because they're literally in the dirt, right? Because they've decayed, like their oh, bodies God. have, or they're under the ocean. And that, and that they had to, 
you know, that she, she describes that, that the ancestors know their only refuge is dirt on page 63, she says. Um, and then she goes on on page 64, you know, when would the earth walkers be ready for death? Hmm. And this, right, this earth metaphor of like, it's our duty, say, as humans in some level to, like, not a duty perhaps, but uh, okay, I will say this. Give me two seconds or whatever to set this up in a, in a certain way. Because, uh, again, I'm reading this through some, like, African cosmologies. And, and so voodoo from Benin and voodoo in Haiti, everyone is born. Voodoo is a word that means spirit, but it's also an understanding of an obligation in that and this is how I've always understood it, that literally the like elements that compose your material body are on hock because the calcium, the mineral, all that shit that's in you has been a, from a star that exploded or whatever. Right. And like, that does not belong to you. And, and so voodoo teaches you that literally you come out of the earth, owing the earth, some kind of obligation because it is the constituent elements of you and that you know you are going back to it again. And so voodoo is the practice of understanding that every part of the earth has a, a, a spiritual kind of resonance and that you owe it some some kind of reciprocity because you're going back to it again and you've come out of it before and whatnot. And so trees, waterfalls, rocks, all these places become points or points that you can like have these contacts with ancestral spirits and, and with your future almost because, right. And so in, in that kind of, in that kind of understanding, like as humans, we're only going to be in this human form for this life, but like we've been other forms of life or we're going to become other forms of life after we die. Our bodies can contribute back Mm -hmm. because I think, wanting to become an ancestor in that way and like wanting to become able to breathe underground or to breathe underwater makes you available again for these reconstitutive iterative processes processes of like life. And one of the problems on page 161 of there not being this kind of like understanding of the dirt in the right way um, is where am I trying to find it? I know it's on 161. Where she talks about that the people, um, the weakness of a lawn, um, and that the yeah. cosmic uselessness of grass versus the benefits that old growth trees bring. Um, why am I not able? I know. It's the second to last paragraph on 161. You see it there. Yeah. We didn't think about it, and some would say that not knowing the stories didn't matter because how do you prepare for a huge event like that anyway? But think about it. If you knew, really knew the implications of the weakness of a law, the cosmic uselessness of grass, the real help, helpfulness of a diverse old-growth forest just in terms of being able to hold on, the decisions about what to do with land could have been completely different. And in the moment, in the moment, they could have at least sought an oak or another tree with interconnected roots. Right. And that, right. Like, so that like literally being able to hold on in this sense of like an old growth 
forest where there are molt, like many trees with interconnected roots in a kind of like almost rhizomatic way. Like there, you don't know where the origin of one is and the other. They are totally blended together because they're literally the ancestors like writhing together in the dirt and creating new life. And they have this rootedness that without that, because on page 162, but anyway, this is what happened and you can take it literally or not. One day, all at the same time, the continents got up, just stood up, right? Just stood right up after letting us live on their backs all that time. Just stood up, gorgeous, gigantic, and brown and naked, except for what we had built or allowed to remain. They just stood up and walked resolutely out into space, and the water between fell out of orbit, and most of us fell too, unless we held on, and the planet was gone. Right? And it's almost like... Those continents were able to get up and walk away so easily because they had nothing holding them down and connecting them together anymore either. Because there was, we yeah. killed this like the ancestral dirt. It's, is, and you had to hold on to each other because there was no world to hold on. Right, to. we had nothing. So if you weren't able to find interconnectedness again, like your individualism atomization, letting the literal soil become loose and interconnected because everything you grow has shallow roots. Like it's all your undoing, whether it's your social world, whether it's your material world, whether it's your spiritual world and your ancestral connections or not, you've let it all slip. Right. And it all just falls apart. It's, you know, I think it's really powerful the way on, on page 158 and 9, she said, this is just, this is not just a loss, as you said, as a material world, but this is a loss of the world of science. Mm -hmm. This is a, 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 a yeah. world without signification. Mm -hmm. Right? So what do you hold on to in a world without signification? See, that, that, that actually was reminding me of some, like, when we were talking about Car Calvin Warren, right? And where he talks about meaning and, and metaphysics being anti-blackness. And in some way, like, yeah, like if meaning and metaphysics within the, like the middle passage world or whatever is anti-black, then the loss of signs is that kind of liberation out of that, right? Like it is the end of the world. Yeah. It's the, it's the end of, it's the end of, you know, again, I'm going to return to sex and it's the end of the desire and of a possibility for a world. Because mm -hmm. worlds, yeah, right. Worlds need structure in order to be a world. They have to have a cosmology, or they have to have some grammar to them to actually be an a anchor. world. An anchor. And here she says, we have to be our own anchors. We have to be each other's anchor. That's why you get to become a time traveler, right? Like, so you're not in any one world. You're just traveling worlds. You're, I, we travel the spaceways, as Sun Ra would say. Mm -hmm. Like, we were talking about this recently, Darius. But, you know, in Sun Ra's uh, 1974 Space is the Place, where the opening scene, and for some folks who don't know Sun Ra, I don't want to say he was Afrofuturist. I think Afrofuturism has created a genealogy where folks like Sun Ra are yes. part of it. But Sun Ra was just doing Sun Ra, right? In the 60s, 70s, an experimental avant-garde jazz, but created this mythology of being from space and not actually being a black person anymore, but like he had had a black form, but that he was actually from space, like time immemorial, and was here to gather black people back to take him to take them all back to this planet because the earth was no longer a place where they would ever be able to live 
peacefully, right? And and so, but like, so the, the this movie opens with Sun Ra traveling through space and these voices saying, it's after the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? It's after the end of the world. Don't you know that yet? And they keep saying this and emphasizing it in different ways. And it's like, wherever Sun Ra is at, he's at whatever world after, you know, like that is one of the many possible places where you could travel in this staging after the world. Alexis Pauline Gums has taken us to one realm, but you, you could then like push a button or something and then you can like travel with Sun Ra for a little bit if you want. And then you could jump into somewhere else and you just keep, it. it, it is a necessary kind of fugitivity, but in a different sense, like it's a fugitivity in a cosmic scale, but you have to stay fugitive. You know what I mean? You have to keep moving through these worlds because not, there isn't any one world to actually become rooted in. I wanted to talk really briefly about the way she talks about black motherhood in Africa, because I think that this is also about the world she's asking us to inhabit. So on 123, she says the relationship to Africa lives in that time machine. Right, that that is where she finds it. Um, there's something about black mother that just keeps reappearing for me in this text, and I wondered mm-hmm. what you all thought about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this um, yeah, on that same page. I'm just going to read quickly this paragraph. Um, her mother is not Africa. Africa is the place where she swam in the dark. No, Africa is the place before she screamed, um, chained there in the dark. Her memory of her mother is the truth that taught her shallower breaths would save her in that cold place, that wet place, wherever after it hurt to breathe. Her mother is the warning that said, use your brain to protect your heart. Her mother is not that dark place she doesn't remember. Her mother is not a ship. Her mother is not Phyllis. Her name is her name, or sorry, her name is her mother's name. Her mother's name is a vessel she screams in alone and surrounded and chained. This is not helping. Um, you know, thinking about that passage and Shadi to speak to what you're asking regarding the mother, what really got me was that engagement with the mother, for me, brought it back to Spill and to Spillers. And so far as helping us rethink the kind of lineages that we create and the kind of paths that we fold ourselves into. And now I'm thinking about it in terms of a scholar who's wanting to engage this kind of project, but not being sure how to. Uh, I'm constantly thinking about what this meditation on the mother or what we might say the status of the mother in this larger project of rethinking the human and rethinking blackness, um, how it is that we can be pushed to engage that more critically, right? Or even just give ourselves permission to explore through the work of gums. And I think this this particular piece opens that up because, in part, it is doing away with the very particular um, grand narrative that we have established around particularly African-American life that we somehow graft onto blackness in the world more generally. And she's giving us um, a portal into various other conversations. Um, it's a bit vague, but I can follow up on that later on. <laughs> Yeah, she, you know, there's so much here about teleportation and telepathy, and mm-hmm. in a way, she channels that in this right. text. We're, we're like, act, like, and it's interesting, like, teleportation is a technology that she mm-hmm. kind of, pre- like, in some way, predicts will take place within the future of this world before it collapses. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and she also mentions that, like, at some point things get so bad that they abolished prisons because they needed everyone to kind of help solve the impending crisis of not being able to breathe and the earth falling apart, basically. Mm-hmm. But, like, so you almost get these interesting, like, you know, in this, in this, like, whatever the future is of the world that becomes the apocalyptic crash mm-hmm. like there there are these moments of like prison abolitionism or teleportation technologies that make travel and like carbon footprints unnecessary anymore like there are those moments of hope within the epistem that's like we have to save the earth mm-hmm. but that still is not enough right but like it's interesting that she implots that still that like if you were bought into salvaging that world instead of letting it be destroyed or letting it fall apart. There are those moments even in that, that are still speculatively futuristic that like at some point, if we could abolish prisons and have teleportation technology, there are some people who would think like, maybe we could save things, right? Like those are progressive, hopeful things. And yet Mm -hmm. that world still fell apart. And I really like that you get that tension there. Those kinds of things are, like, as much as I'm an abolitionist, a prison abolitionist, like, that alone, I don't, that's not, that's not ending the world, you know, like, or, like, ending the world is on such a grander scale that, like, that other part that I read where every one of us would have to say goodbye to our PlayStations and say not enough, you know, or, like, say no more never again to having little children make things that we use. Like, we talk about this on this podcast a lot sometimes the very meta attention that like we are having this conversation while using our macbooks and our sony recorders and everything you know like how can i have this conversation about trying to escape Mm -hmm. when i'm using the very things that are like facilitating it are trapping me in right Mm -hmm. and i i really so you, I like I like that that's there. I like that there's some of that in that narrative because you could really kind of sketch out the world that she's staging before it fell apart, and you can see the progressive liberal kind of strategies that were working that seem to be effective in that world. These are multiple nodes of the many and varied apocalypse that she's talking about. I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it's these little things she gestures towards that we can see are the. Pedagog- are, are the crossing over, right? And the other thing is, of course, the, 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 the middle passage, the memory of being packaged and preserved barely while crossing over is the language she uses for it on page uh, 114. And then she even talks, and this is where I was trying to get at, I think, when I, when I asked about Black Mothering. Mm. There's another passage on page 92 in which she talks about, you know, the birth and contraction and arrival and a crossing over. You know, from the inception of life, there are many multiple apocalypses that have led to, you know, what becomes the multiple cosmologies of the end of the world. Um, not least of all the carbon footprint that you described that is part of the protocols of the everyday. And there's another, I, you know, mothering in some way, I think this fits into that idea, too, of mothering. On page 150, it's just so matter of fact, the way she opens it up. Um, I don't know if you have it on paper, maybe quicker than I can get it on my screen, but she talks about, it just opens. Remember, remember when the people started to dress their children like cops stitched blues, defining their shoulders and bulletproof bulk to cross their hearts. You saw them on the playgrounds first, the children who had gone, who had to get home by themselves at the end of the day. 
The only conclusion the parents could make from the dash cams and trial results was that to be protected by the police, you had to dress the fragile part they thought they played. It was the last of the see my child as human strategies. It didn't work. But I'm just like, man, like in this future world of our world, as it unfolds into the, its own future ending or something, right? Like parents are going to start dressing their children like cops as a way to try to save them in one mm-hmm. last ditch effort. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just all these, what makes it resonate, I think, is that it really, it could, it's a very, it is speculative, but it's rooted in a lot of our current anthropocentric problems. And like, there are citations to some of the scientific things that she brings to bear. I think mm-hmm. she's even, you know, just like these are, it's, 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 it's speculative, but like, it's not that. It's not speculative that we are killing the 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 cosmos, or like that we're killing our our ecology. You know what I mean? Like that's not speculative. That so like that's a it, there's something very materially tangible about it, and I think that's like the black feminist metaphysics is a materiality, but it's a materiality that also can admit spirit in a way. So like it's a there's a there's a fusion of a right there's a legible because here's the thing right it's like so. The, the part that you just read reminded me of anti-surveillance fashion, right? It reminds me of, like, fashionable Kevlar material, right? All these ways that folks are coming mm-hmm. up with strategies to survive. And so it's almost like, you know, putting black kids in cop uniforms is an extreme form of that, right? It's like, how is it that fashion becomes a way of thinking about our survival, right? Like, Tanisha Ford does this, right? With, with her engagement with the history of fashion, uh, black material culture, and also black Southern activism, right? Mm-hmm. It's helping us understand how a fabric like denim for black women and girls who were who were activists, right? That became a part of armor, right? It didn't make them as visually susceptible um, to, I guess, um, uh, sexual vulnerability or gender vulnerability, right? Um, that say having lace at a protest would do, right? Because you get sprayed by hose, you get put in a paddy wagon, all of these different things. And so for so very long now, particularly black women have been thinking about the role that clothing fashion adornment can play even in creating um, a social political discourse of protection. Right. Mm -hmm. It gets deployed in different ways. You know, we can have a whole sub conversation about respectability politics, but I think what Alexis is getting us to think through is how very particular segments of the population are made vulnerable to forms of violence that are justified, you know, in the name of the state. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is something that she, this is something that she speaks to on page 149. Right. So she says they used to scoop up everything we loved and put it in a machine, distill off all the excess, all the parts that could never be settled, all the parts that were older than history, all the parts where we loved each other enough to be completely afraid, ecstatic parts, the purple parts, the parts with the racing hearts. And at the bottom of the process, it looked like the state. It tasted not much of anything. It was exactly the same process that made patties and fried chicken into the stuff of fast food chains. And eventually the machine began to only feed itself and our duller taste for existence. Eventually they didn't even have to start with chicken to get us to show up and buy Right. So she's slowly like bringing us to um, slowly bringing us to this cataclysmic event for some folks. Um, but I don't believe in like an extinction level event. Right. Mm-hmm. So like playoff bust around. Just like I don't I don't believe in just like, like clearly there, are multiple. there are. And she says in the beginning, there are multiple groups of people 
who didn't realize that there were other groups of people who survived this too. Right. And so you have this false understanding that like wherever you are, you think you're the only people who survived it, but there are multiple groups of people who mm-hmm. think they survived it alone. And mm-hmm. so who knows mm-hmm. who actually died or who didn't in this way, right? Like there was some mm-hmm. apocalypse, but there are clearly lots of groups of people who, mm-hmm. who survived too. Yeah. Yeah. So there is no, true end or that right. each end becomes a new unfolding and mm-hmm. re-enfolding and a mm-hmm. well she says right to create oneself anew on a regular basis this mm-hmm. is in part the word right it's every single day that, and that's an allegory yeah and, but then it's also it's an allegory that is also like rooted in a kind of new materialism a cosmic quantum new materialism which I think you see her doing here too that like no literally like we recreate ourselves new. Even the slaves who died in the ocean in the middle passage have recreated themselves into like bioluminescence because their calcium is down there, like contributing like that's, and that is not a metaphor, Like you know, but it is a metaphor too. And I think that's, what's beautiful about the, the materialism of this black feminist metaphysics is that it attunes you to all of those dimensions at once. The affective, the, the yeah. material, the affective, the spiritual, the psychological, the social, the, ca- the economic, the political, like everything is interrelated and interconnected and reflective and refractive of everything else. And so you are attuned to all of it at once. And she brings it all together in the most simplistic kind of ways where she just cuts through like fast food consumption being related to all of these spiritual ancestral problems of capitalist individualism, right? It's just like, whoa, mm-hmm. you're doing so much. And it's so, it's so sleek at mm-hmm. the same time because you can fall into just the story of this mm-hmm. And if you're just someone who's a sci-fi fantasy genre person, I think you could get this too, because there are enough resonances with those other kinds of genre stories mm-hmm. where you can get it. Mm-hmm. If you're coming at this just from like a theory way, or you, you know, or and you're mm-hmm. not, you need to either have the the theoretical genealogy and understand what she's working through, the black mm-hmm. feminist metaphysics. Or you need to be attuned to like just understanding fantasy genre. Mm-hmm. Or I think even just be attuned to imagination, right? Or imagination, thing, right? right. Like, I, I don't. Know, yeah. I'm trying to think like who, because yeah. like where, mm-hmm. like how would you te- would you teach this text? And yeah, in I what would, class? Yeah. I, I would teach this. I, yeah. Oh yeah, Shadi, go go ahead. No, no, I want you, I want to hear what um, you're saying. Yeah, so, so I would, I would teach it with Samia Bashir's field theories, right? So thinking about quantum black yes. bodies, right? I would teach it with Sadia Hartman's Venus in Two Acts and also Dead Book from Lose Your Mother and Dead Book Revisited. Um, that's actually, I'm doing that for, um, a grad course, um, that particular sequence, but I can't teach this book yet because it's not out. But I, when I was making my syllabus, envisioned having this book as a part of, you know, that week or two weeks where we're unpacking mm-hmm. those works. But I'd also teach it with um, Douglas Kearney's book, Mess and Mess and. And so there's a particular um, poem in this book, which is some terms for black study. And James, I'll probably like geeked out with you about this. But he's got this definite blackness um, in this poem, which he defines blackness as the condition of being the shit when it happens. And so if we were to take that ebullient poem, right, and just like drop it into the ocean, M-Archive, mm-hmm. for me, is what would be produced, 
right? It's like Doug in part gives us a portal, right, into this realm where Alexis is posted and she's like, you can go here, here, here. You can go all of these places and nowhere at the same time, right? And that's in part your existence, mm-hmm. right? So for me, this, you know, having a constellation of black poets um, and some black critical theorists, that's in part what like folds us into this conversation, right? But if I were to bring all this stuff in the classroom and talk with students about it, I, you know, ask yourself not just one version, what version of the world you want to exist. Um, but I would actually go into a classroom. I'd have them pull out a sheet of paper. I would turn on Funkadelic's Maggot Brain. Yeah. I would turn out the lights and I would have them just listen to the song in the dark and write about where the song takes them, right? I would have them. Yeah, I think that's what I would do. That's actually no. I, that's dope. I, how would you? What were you going to say, Shadi, about how you would teach this? No, mine pales in comparison. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I teach. I teach an, an upper division undergraduate class um, that I describe as Black Lives parentheses don't matter, and it's mm. about the structural ways in which the genre of man, the genre of the human, has made it impossible for Black lives to matter. Mm-hmm. And I ask them to read theory-heavy texts. Um, texts that are written by Afro-pessimists and are written with an eye towards black metaphysics and black feminist metaphysics Mm. without them really having the knowledge of, you know, Hegel, Lacan, Gramsci, etc., you know, Marx, to really understand the critiques that are being made. Um, And so I ask them to read, I think exactly as Darius, you're you're asking them that you would ask them to think, which is like, what is the feeling that it evokes in you? Mm -hmm. And, you know, some, you know, students have asked me, well, what does this end of the world look like? Like, if that's what we're aiming for, what does it look like? And I often refer them to, to sex and social life of social death in Mm -hmm. which, you know, the, the social death is not the end of the world. It's a portal into another kind of experience. Yep. And so what is that portal? And there's, there's so many ways in which she describes here as, you know, I think of a sex and, you know, sites topsy in the color museum and says mm-hmm. dance to the madness because yeah. there's yeah. a freedom there. Mm-hmm. Um, very similarly, Alexis uh, on page uh, 95 describes this as uh, blackness as darkness on the move describes this as a kind of dancing. Yeah. So on page 95, she writes, um, if you treat it like a small and fragile light, vulnerable to wind and whatever, easily extinguished by the weight of our steps, then everything becomes a dance. Mm-hmm. You have to release the heaviness in your body and get gentle with darkness on the move. And she mm-hmm. goes on uh, to talk about how this is a kind of survival. Um, mm-hmm. And so what does it mean um, for them to imagine, to, to use Alexis's work, to really imagine what crossing over looks like into that other world, into that other plane, mm-hmm. into a different configuration of space and time in which time loops. And perhaps, I mean, if we want to look at the physics of it, this is actually the way time works. Right. right? The, <laughs> like, fiction that's... Time, the fictions of time we've been told, right. the sociocultural <laughs> explanations for time is linear and progressive and developmental and, you know... Like, that's speculative. Blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? This like, literally not... speculative in a kind of speculation capital investment idea like that is speculative time the 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 time of capital and and whatnot but um (laughs) yeah and i think alexis's work like teaches them how to read for feeling because she's trying to get them to access other sensorium Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes and so that's what i really appreciate and so you know i thought that especially the sections on archive of sky and archive of fire uh could be assigned by uh with fanon and then there's Mm. There's, there's other pages um, 
that, you know, I, I feel I can draw from once this is published to teach. Mm -hmm. um, not least of all, you know, when she describes this end of the world as a loss of science and signification, which is on 158 and 159. Mm -hmm. I, so you mentioned something about sex and that I had thought if I, if I, there was a way to tie it in, I wanted to tie it in. Cause I want, I really like this, like, there's the old, I don't know which mythology it is, but they say like the world is positioned on the back of a turtle, right? And it's like, well, what's under the turtle and, and another turtle? And then what's on that turtle? And it's like, it's turtles all the way down, right? Um, or that kind of, that, I, that, that image. That's the Boyd's motto. That's what we call ourselves. Turtles all the way down. Hey, okay. So like that side of our brand. That's see, I hate that that's being branded then because th that image of like the frat, like when you put a mirror in front of another mirror, right? And there's just like an infinity of mirrors that unfold into themselves that bearable liberalism of whiteness that, white yeah that is terrible. not a brand like that is terrible <laughs> uh you can't brand that because like whatever uh i mean so this the is phrase, the problem the this, phrase freedom well, of expression is copywritten this is the problem of freedom of expression as a copywritten phrase uh, yeah trademark yeah lord yeah. lord so okay <laughs> but like the end of the world as being just a portal to another right um ever since i was a little kid because i'm like my research is a me search on some level or whatever. But, um, since I was a little kid, I always thought it was interesting when you pray the glory be, um, I think in English, I'm trying to think in, in Catholic, the Catholic glory be prayer ends like world without end. Amen. Right. But in Spanish, it's por los siglos de los siglos, which means by the worlds of the worlds or something. And there's, it's pluralized. And I always remember as a kid being like, how many worlds are there? If it's worlds without, we're like siglos de los siglos, the worlds of the worlds. And in Latin, it's secula seculorum, which is like worlds of worlds, like an infinity of worlds. And what that prayer, at least in their worldview, is that like God is the God of every world, every infinite world. He's of all of them, or it is of all of them, right? And... I think that kind of cosmology, like she's scratching at that, like on that quantum level, whether you come at it from religion or whether you come at it from I mean, like God is a black woman, but it's exactly the same thing. It's, it's, it's just this, it is the fat black woman who continually gives birth, right? It is the black void of space that like erupts in the big bang. Right? It is, it is like the, the black void that constantly, resupplies or the invagination process as Fred Moten uses that term, right? This constant invagination, uh, which I don't like that. I don't know how I feel about that word, but I think there is something about the continual creation, right? Like this continual birthing, nothing ever. And one, one thing ends and it becomes the beginning of another or the start of another, or like there is no, every ending is a beginning somewhere else and times are simultaneous. Like the, mm -hmm. the beginning of one is the middle of another is the third of another is the, who knows, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, I think it's the idea of like where you like Sexton and anti anti blackness talks about, it could be in space. It could be under the ground. It could mm -hmm. be anywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. Like and this is why we have to rethink breath and breathing. Right. And the, and uh, the bodies that we attach to that kind of logic. So I just want to... no. This is, <laughs> I I like like there's so many things. Okay, what was I? How would I teach this? I guess because we're wrapping this up, we got to wrap it. I can keep spiraling <laughs> and keep trying to talk about it, but there is no end to talking about it. But how would I teach it? I would teach it on. So like I I taught a class a couple years ago that was on 
African diasporic cosmologies and mythology. And we started in like a very traditional sense and like looking at voodoo, looking at Santeria, looking at like Shango Baptist and the Caribbean and Pentecostalism and all that. But then by the end of that course, we were listening to Eric about do songs and P-Funk and, and reading Mark Derry's Black to the Future and getting into Afrofuturism. And I would love to do some kind of redesign of that style of a course again, but I would want my students to read, like, Yoruba mythologies of, like, the creation of the world, and then read this, and just, like, whatever resonates across all that for them. I think there would be a lot of things to resonate. I I don't know how they would take that up, but I think what she's doing is part of a long tradition of black, cosmological mythological creation and i don't you know and it's like as much as this is an academic writing like she's an academic she is a black person who is giving us a revelation of a cosmos and i want to read her text like any kind of gnostic religious Mm -hmm. kind of text that we might encounter like here's another account of the great flood or something like you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it just kind of has students consider what are the truths at the level of mythology mm-hmm. that make it allegorically true for all times and places in all mm-hmm. of those many worlds? What is the truth of the black feminist metaphysics, mm-hmm. right? That like permeates throughout all or something mm-hmm. breath, mm-hmm. right? What is, what is breath? Mm-hmm. And really like putting her alongside Ashton Crowley's Pentecostal breath, mm-hmm. black Pentecostal breath mm-hmm. might be really interesting because mm-hmm. you wouldn't even think that those two books would, Belong on a syllabus together, but maybe they do. Or, I mean, you know, like, I would, I kind of, I low-key want somebody to make a class on the history of blackness and water, um, or just call it blackness yeah. and water, not even the history, and have, you know, have Ashan and Alexis's books be the center, right? And to focus on... You can even, even show Beyonce's lemonade. Yeah, absolutely, right? It's all of these, right? It's like, have us rethink breath, right? Have us rethink bodies, have us rethink the the possibility of blackness, right? Have us rethink the book as archive, right? Because, you know, with this entire conversation, it is the result of a book that is called M Archive, mm. right? The, the multiple ways that this book materializes or creates the potential for a materiality or something that is far beyond, right, a materiality or material condition, right? So much of that is made possible through, for me, you know, this book is largely a continuation of the scenes that she uses or a continuation of the idea of scenes insofar as they are portals or access points to these other realms, right? Like it's what she did with Spill. And for me, again, this project, you know, spills, spills into this particular book, but also gives us the book again as archive, as register, as possibility for a whole nother way of thinking about breath, um, life, or even something that is far beyond life. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I've not read the book, but fledgling Octavia Butler's mm-hmm. fledgling. Uh, where there's, it's, I, I need to get, I'm trying to look at it up real quick here, but I know she has like a trope of vampires that is like middle passage vampires, or I might be crossing this with another book where like black slaves who, who went overboard turned into some kind of underwater creature. I'm, maybe it is Delany. I don't, I need to get better on my Afrofuturism, mm. but. <laughs> 
Hey, this is uh, James. Just popping in here real quick because I mix up my Afrofuturist canon sometime, um, sometimes. And I wanted to just clarify um, what it is that I was trying to reference there. Um, so it actually wasn't a novel at all by Butler or Delaney. But um, 1997, the Detroit electronic duo, like house... Um, house music um, electronic duo Drexia they released an album called The Quest in 1997 that on part of the liner notes came up with this like mythology of pregnant African women who jumped over sea o- overboard into the sea during the Middle Passage, um, that they still were able to give birth to sea ba- to give birth to babies that did not need um, air or that were able to breathe underwater. And then, like, the album um, relates this to, uh, like, science experiments on babies breathing liquid oxygen who were born premature and also to um, legends of gill men and swamp monsters in the southeastern um, part of the United States, like the... uh, the Gullah Geechee folks of the Carolinas and Georgia. So that Drexia mythology of uh, the, so the Drexians are these sea creatures that are born of African enslaved women who jumped overboard and the Drexians were then coming to invade the United States through house music. Um, and and so that's pretty interesting um, and relates, I think, to this conversation about the mother and and womanhood and the middle passage and the futurities um, that Alexis Gums is bringing in with M Archive. So I wanted to make sure that I really did clarify that um, because... For those of you who are interested in following this kind of Afrofuturist genealogy, you might want to check out The Quest. Um, And Kadwell Ishun, who's an Afrofuturist scholar, British Ghanaian scholar and filmmaker and theorist, has written about um, Drexia. And so I will link to that as well. All right, we'll pop you back into the episode to finish that up. There are some texts that would speak directly to some of this, like, futuristic, uh, like to, to really pick up on, on the, the resonances of those genres, I think, and thinking through like, what is the end of the world where death is not the end, but like mm-hmm. dying, you just transmogrify mm-hmm. or transmute into some other kind of life, mm-hmm. some other illegible form of life, but yet you are still present, right? Ever present. Mm-hmm. How would y'all describe this book? to somebody who is not familiar with black theory, black historical discourse, like how, how would you attempt to, I don't even want to say frame, but I'll say, how would you take hold of someone's hand and walk them into a project like in the archive? It's a critical fabulation. Yeah. Um, yes. Maybe if that word is a little too complicated, I'd explain what that means, but mm-hmm. a critical imagining of, um, of a story that, isn't there and can't be written, and yet it yeah. must. Yeah. And yet it must. See, that's not actually critical fabulation because fabulation gets you right back to a fable, right? Which is like, that's how I would position this for folks. Like, you have to think of this as an allegory, as a fable, as a myth, as some kind of 
fantasy genre that like it is going to require you to like you have to be able to conceive of multiple worlds and like interdimensional travel or something, you know, like you just have to be able to have that framework. And once you can, once you get that framework, Mm -hmm. you can plug this in and there's enough, I think texture in the way, because it's very material. Like the story, the story itself is very material. You can read that and you can see exactly what she's talking about in our consumptive practices and in our ecological, in the eco criticism. So it's not like you won't be able to attach to what's happening. And I'd like the attention to details that she spells out. That you, yeah, there's enough in the story itself, I think, that you have to just, like, be imaginative, and as long Mm -hmm. as you have your mind open to an imaginative fantasy Mm -hmm. or fabulation. Yeah, and the reason I use critical fabulation... She'll do the rest. Mm -hmm. The reason I use critical fabulation, I mean, I could have used her own wording, which is speculative documentary. Right. Um, And either one takes me to Fred Moten's description of elsewhere and elsewhere. Yeah. Like, this is the otherwise, um, mm-hmm. otherwise the capital O. And I really, really like that the otherwise is the specificity of the fat black woman, because yeah. I think that there's this ruse of, uh, of, of plurality that we have, right? This multiculturalist multitude, mm-hmm. that this is going to be what saves us, yeah. right? And actually, it's through the specificity of the fat black woman and the specific- specificity of this particular otherwise that is multiple, particularly because it's singular, that we find some kind of freedom, mm-hmm. which is a freedom not just of it releases us of the fiction of the human and puts us into this coeval relationship with nature that is about not just our own survival, but about the survival of the planet. Right. Freedom is the union with, or like the reunion with that fat black woman in you and me and all of us. Right. Like it, cause she even mentions it on page 11, like as, and I know we're shutting this down, but at, She's talking about the introduction of the of the shark clean bones, right? Of of mm-hmm. dead Africans, but she calls them the shark clean bones of the free, mm-hmm. and they're into the complex environment of the one insufferable ocean. Because, like, when you go back to that place, you're going back to Mama. You are going back to the you're going back to the to the processes of creation because you are mm-hmm. you are becoming part again of something new. You are mm-hmm. rebirthing a new world again, and I. Back to that, who you might become. Right. That that fat black woman is everything. <laughs> everything is everything. I think she says it, and like you know, that's a shout out to Erica Badu. Is it Erica Badu? Mm-hmm. No, Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill. Everything is everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the metaphysics. Like that is black mm-hmm. feminist metaphysics in a nutshell. Everything mm-hmm. is everything. There is no separation. There is no atomization. There is no individuality. Mm-hmm. And that breaks down into a multitude of social and political economic problems. Mm-hmm. But there's also no. Those... What's up? I'm sorry. I said creates a cosmology. Mm-hmm. Right. It is mm-hmm. a whole cosmology. Mm-hmm. And it's it... that's black girl magic. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, it, it also, you know, for me produces a deep uncertainty. And so, you know, one, as somebody who constantly revisits, um, spill and some of Alexis's other pieces, it takes me a while to sit with a project, right? It takes me a while to sit with her writing and I have to come back to it multiple times after experiencing different things. Like I just, I have to keep returning to it to, um, understand how her work works on me. And so there's so much of M archive that is, is unintelligible to me at this point in a really beautiful way. Right. 
Because I don't, I don't think it, for me, it's almost like reading Moten. If anybody tells me that they read like in the break straight through, I'm going to, I'm going to call them a liar. <laughs> I'm like, you don't have to lie to kick it. You don't have to stunt. Right. But part of the, part of the joy of engaging with M archive for me has been reconciling the, the ways that the book untethers me to this particular reality. And so I'm kind of in a free fall or a free float. Mm. And I like that. Right. <laughs> there, there are moments that I'm going to have to, there are moments in this text that I have to keep revisiting so that it can make meaning through me. Um, but I think that's how Alexis invites us to conversations, right? She allows us to be broken upward, right? In ways that aren't simply, you know, a destruction, right? Or possibly even a destruction. She, she allows us to be in that and to sit with it. Um, so yeah, it's, I'm looking forward to coming back to it. Likewise. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the horizon of infinite possibilities that emerges mm-hmm. from the point of view mm-hmm. of wherever she positions us in this book mm-hmm. or the horizons mm-hmm. that emerge from that point are vast and expanded. Right. And like, mm-hmm. that is the work she's given us a whole nother set of horizons. Yeah. Um, and that's re- at the end of the day, that's really all, right? We just mm-hmm. we just need a different set of horizons of possibility. Mm-hmm. And horizons that cannot be named. And I think, yep. you know, as, a, as an apt ending, I'll just quote on page 88. She says, um, uh, uh, she says, they cannot, you know, this is the narrator kind of speaking about the end of the world. They cannot name me. She's saying in the languages of wind and DNA. I come to take names. I come to break names apart. <laughs> Yeah, that's the final <laughs> word right there. I this was a this was a very um I don't like I feel like I've gotten something like this was there's something in excess of like reading an an academic theoretical book here. And I and so I want to thank Alexis Pauline Gums for writing in a way that is giving you something like it's, it's really giving you life, right? Like it gave, it gave me life to read this in, in, in just a almost devotional way. I got that from in the wake and Christina Sharp's work as well. Like just a kind of devotionalism. And I don't know if that's the word that they would want to describe for it. But for me personally, reading those kinds that those texts, this text was almost devotional. And I just personally am very thankful for that. So and uh, I was saying that this allowed me to dream, and I'm not. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it allowed me to dream. That's 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 beautiful. All right. Well, I think we have. Um, I, I'm going to leave our viewers on that dream because if you're listening to this and it's still February, you can't buy this book yet. So mm-hmm. you're, we have seeded your dreams of what you're going to hopefully want to check out in a couple weeks when it actually drops. Um, so yeah, big big thanks again to Alexis Pauline Gums for making this possible and for allowing us to have an advanced copy um, and to get a little preview of uh, that other dimension that she's taking us to. And I'm really excited. I need to read Spill now. And this trilogy has a third yet to come still. And so that's exciting. Darius... Thank you for joining the, the, the Motley crew here at Always Already as our... All right, you are our 
black studies, speculative fiction, narratives, <laughs> correspondent or something. We'll, we'll come out with it. Coming soon. <laughs> no, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is really dope. You know, I often listen to the podcast, and so I'm sitting at the cool kids' table right now. Hey. <laughs> are you? Where's, yeah. Where are they? Where are the cool kids? <laughs> Shadi. Thank you for having me. It was such a great honor to, to speak with you both. I felt so out of my depth in conversation with you both. Um, you always keep me on my toes, James and Darius. Same, same to you. So thank you. No, for thank you. Making my brain tick. There's something very affirmative about all of this, yeah. I think. Yeah. About what she's doing, she's, she's affirming us in engaging this text. You feel an affirmation from it, and I felt that with you too as well. So... Until next time, have an always already day. Bye. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Always Already Podcast, which is created by James Pallioni Jr., Emily Crandall, Rachel Brown, John McMahon, and B. Altman. Visit our website, alwaysareadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us texts you'd like us to discuss, advice questions to answer, and dreams to analyze to alwaysareadypodcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at alwaysareadyon. Uh, subscribe to our RSS feed, leave us a good review on the podcast uh, feed reader of your choice, and uh, we can really appreciate your possible Patreon donations. Um, we have uh, the first transcript of an episode of our uh, Afro-Pessimism Black Optimism episode that is now online, and uh, if we get some more money from y'all, we're going to have some more transcripts coming soon. You can support us there, patreon.com slash Podcast. Thank you to Bad Infinity, previous guest slash friend of the show, Bad Infinity, for Mirrors, which you heard at the beginning of the episode. And always already thank you to B for their cover of Landslide, which you are listening to right now. Uh, coming up soon, we have another uh, we have another episode, an interview with Kyla Schuller on her book, uh, new book from Duke, Biopolitics of Feeling. So look forward to that. And until then, have an always already day.